Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Um, It's good to be here and to be having the pleasure of sharing with you our next episode in our series in the book of John, Superman HD, HD being human and divine. Jesus, the true definition of the Superman. And um, today we're going to consider the matter of being renewed or being refused. Now, um, I had, I've had the privilege of going to L.A. Um, a, a, for, on a few occasions. And um, it was interesting going out there and seeing Los Angeles, seeing Hollywood, kind of standing and seeing the Hollywood sign up, up on the mountain and seeing the, the, the places that I've heard talked about in songs and seen on films, I got to go to Roscoe's and eat chicken and waffles. And, you know, to be honest, it was a very underwhelming experience. The whole thing, like, but Roscoe's was cool, yeah, but it wasn't like, I heard so much um, about Roscoe's and, you know, even just the whole Hollywood thing. Um, got to walk, what they call it, the Walk of Fame or something like that, where the stars are on the floor and everything. Um, the, the, the stars with people's names, that is, not celebrities laying out on the floor. <laughs> and, um, but it was a very underwhelming experience because the way in which it's presented and the way in which it's talked about, it seems very kind of glamorous and exciting. And, and yet being there, it was just like, okay, is this it? Like, to be honest, and, and you know, I don't even say this in a way that I'm hating because even people who are from LA will tell you this. Hollywood is quite dirty. It's quite a dirty place. <laughs> if anyone's been there, you kind of know that. Um, and so this kind of image of just plush, you know, surroundings and glitz and glam is, is all very much um, just in, I guess, our imaginations until we see the reality. And I remember being there and um, speaking with like, some of the people we were with and I'm um, just talking about the fact that, you know, this Hollywood, man, this, this is definitely the home of augmentation. And um, they started laughing because that's, that's the, 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 the polite way of kind of referring to um, female cosmetic surgery of the enhancing type. And, um, you know, there were, it, it just seemed very commonplace for people to go under the knife, as it were, in Hollywood. Both men and women, actually. Like, you see these, these shows with men who are going to get pecs. Like, um, what do they call it? Um, what's the stuff that they put in? Silicone pecs. And silicone biceps. They're just trying to shortcut the gym. No, you know, that's long. I'm just going to go speak to my surgeon and he'll fix me up. And so they're getting a nip and a tuck and, a, and an insert and <clears throat> coming out like Arnie, you know. And so both men and women are giving themselves to this. And there seems this 
this kind of insatiable desire to look better. And this insatiable desire, actually, when you kind of hear the, the stories of people who kind of give themselves to this constantly, you know, you, you've got those individuals that have had like 29 cosmetic surgeries and counting. And, you know, we kind of look at that and there's a certain part of us that may kind of feel sorry for them. And again, not in a, in a derogatory sense, but just in a sense of like, why would you put yourself through that? When is enough enough? And yet, there's something inside of them that doesn't just desire to look better, but be better. And the way to achieve becoming a better person is to try and fulfill this ultimate image that people have in their mind. And so they go through the surgeries in this attempt to kind of attain this perfect image and then feel like I'm a better person. That's going to be the real key. And that's a, probably a very extreme example of what many, if not all of us, go through and have gone through in our lives. When we consider the things that we look to, because for us it might not be cosmetic surgery. You know, for some it's, well, when I get married, that I'm going to be, yeah, that's gonna, I'm going to be fulfilled. And that's, I'm going to have that sense of really getting into my lane and being able to be that person that I really desire to be. For some who are married, it's when I have children. For some who are not working, it's when I get that job or I get that promotion or I get that money. And so there's all kind of things that we look to to fulfill us and ultimately feel as if it's going to make us that better person. It's my circumstances that are the problem. It's my conditions. If only I had passed that degree. I'm going to, now that I've been to night school, I'm going to get my master's. And in and of themselves, there isn't necessarily anything wrong with it. But the reality is that anything can become an idol when we make a good thing an ultimate thing. And Jesus deals with that. Jesus in our text today draws our attention to the need not just to be restyled, but to be recycled. Not just to turn over a new leaf, but receive a new life. And so, let's pray as we turn our attention to John chapter 3. Father God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for the fact that through your word, Lord, you present to us eternal life in your son, Jesus Christ, who is the living word. Hallelujah. Praise be to your name. We ask that you would open the eyes of our understanding. We ask, Lord, that you would cause us to not only understand you better, but understand ourselves better and understand 
our need of you. Our deep, deep need of you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, speak to us through your word today. In your name and for your glory. Amen. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Now, I first learned that saying from Pastor Rob. And we were out in Leicester Square doing evangelism when we used to be at Calvary Chapel, Westminster, in Victoria there. We used to pull a sound system up to Leicester Square in front of the Odeon um, on a Sunday. And we would be out there and from afternoon till night um, sharing the gospel, doing music and preaching. And ever since I first heard that saying, I'm not sure where he got it from, um, but ever since I ever, I, I ever heard that saying, it stuck with me because it's so cleverly and effectively communicates the reality of our situation. And as we meet Jesus in the text here, this is the focus. Now, it's worth us, before we even look at these first few verses and the encounter that's about to take place, just to recap a little on what has happened previously. So, flashback moment previously in Superman HD. What has happened in chapter 2? As you consider the journey that Jesus is on and the story that John, the apostle, is presenting to us. Because it all interrelates, it all interconnects. What happens in the beginning of chapter 2? Speak to me. Wedding, water to wine. Yeah? Jesus challenges the traditions of men, taking that which they esteemed as sacred and important, and using it for a different purpose other than that which they would have determined it for. The, the water that was in the purification pots, he turned into wine, bringing great joy to the occasion for many reasons. We then go on to see him go from a, an expression of joy to that of judgment. So what do we see next happen in chapter 2 after the wedding? He goes to the temple. He makes a whip and he drives out those who have made God's sacred temple into a supermarket. And as we come to the end of chapter 2, we see these verses here. Verses 23 to 25. Now when... He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So it is said that they believed in him in light of the signs that he performed. And yet he didn't entrust himself to them. They believed, and the word in the Greek there is 
trust. They trusted him, but he didn't trust them. Why? Because he knew all people. Some people, he knew just men. All men are dogs. He knew all people. For he himself knew what was in man. Now, you know in life, there are those certain times as we're growing up, somebody might kind of take us under their wing and say, look, let me, if you're going to get on in life, let me tell you about people. You know, you might be a, 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 someone who's going into your first job, being mentored in your job in sales. Someone says, look, if you want to really be a good salesperson, you've got to know people. Let me tell you about people. And they'll go on and tell you how their, their habits and buying patterns and, you know, kind of get into the psychology of it. And they, they want to tell you about people. It might be a young man looking for advice from an older brother. I'm interested in this girl, you know. Listen, if you're going to start fooling around with women, let me tell you about women. Like as if he knows anything to talk. <laughs> I'll tell you about women. You'll never understand them. That's the best thing he could actually say. <laughs> but there's that sense of schooling. There's that sense of insight being shared that would help an individual as they navigate themselves through the relationships of life. Jesus never needed that. He never needed anyone to come and take him inside and say, let me tell you about people. Let me tell you about men. Let me tell you about women. He never needed that. Because Jesus knew people. And he didn't just know people, he knew what was in them. See that at the end there, verse 25. Now what does that mean? What was in man? And when it says man, it's speaking about men and women, humans, all people. And it was this knowledge that prevented him from trusting them. Why wouldn't Jesus trust them? What was it that's in people that caused him not to trust them, even though they believed? Well, the answer is an age-old issue. In fact, it's an issue that stems right from the beginning of creation. Because the first people being the template for all people to follow, they rebelled against God and they sinned. And at that point, sin entered into the world when they disobeyed God and ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as they procreated, every child that came from them of every generation throughout the ages has been affected by the same thing that they were in that instant when they rebelled against God and disobeyed. And that is sin. Now, this gets clarified as we begin to move through our text. But you can be certain that Jesus, being very aware of the sinful nature of man, didn't entrust himself 
to them. Despite the fact that they said they believe. So in chapter 3 verse 1. We meet Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews. So there was a man of the Pharisees. You can follow along in your Bible. It's free. His name was. And he was a. He was a ruler of the Jews. Pharisee named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was a top guy. He was like a head teacher. Furthermore he wouldn't have even just been like a head teacher. He would have been like Ofsted. You know the ones who set the curriculum and, and, and uphold it. A lot of issues with Ofsted right about now. But that's. Maybe kind of reflective of Nicodemus and how he's about to get turned over by Jesus. So Nicodemus was a very, very important guy. In religious circles, he was the right reverend, honorable, doctor, professor Nicodemus to you and I. He was a boss in religious terms. And in verse 2, he came to Jesus by night and said to him rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from god for no one can do these things that you do unless god is with him so he comes to jesus by night we're not sure people speculate as to why nicodemus came to jesus by night was he trying to hide and seek was he in fear of persecution? Some would say, you know, he was genuinely impressed by the Lord and, and he, he, he just kind of discreetly, because of his position and his status, wanted to speak to Jesus on a level. We don't know. Was it because he was a busy man? And as just part of his time management schedule, this was the opportunity that he was going to carve out to speak to Jesus? We don't know. But one thing we do know that is it's significant that he came to Jesus at night. And we say this because John writes well and he doesn't miss a thing. Everything is well intended. And the whole theme of light and dark, night and day is played out throughout his gospel. And so we see that this is intentional. And we see that this in some ways represents Nicodemus' position. Or status. He was a religious leader but he was in the dark. He addresses Jesus as rabbi. In the way that one scholar might say to the other. Sir. Good sir. And so fundamentally there's a sense of Nicodemus coming to Jesus as, as if him and Jesus are on a level. Good sir. Maybe he's expecting Jesus to return. Ah, oh, fellow rabbi. He then speaks in the plural. We know. We who? Who's we? We only see Nicodemus in this conversation. Who are you representing, Nicodemus? Hmm. Interesting question. You see, there is a sense in which following the events of the temple 
and the way in which Jesus so authoritatively turned over the temple and declared the will and purpose of God, there had been discussions. There had been a lot of turmoil, a lot of upset, a lot of controversy. And so it suggested that maybe as Nicodemus comes along, either he is speaking on behalf of those with whom he's consorted, who have kind of said, you know what, this Jesus guy, there's something real going on here. Or Nicodemus is just using the royal we. He's just speaking in the plural so as not to expose his commitment. To kind of put, not put himself in a box. But he speaks in the plural. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now this would sound like a very flattering statement. And yet Jesus' response seems to even instantly expose Nicodemus. You ever had those situations when someone comes to you and makes a statement and you know that they're making a statement because there's a question underneath it? You know, it's going to be really hard for me to get home tonight. (laughs) You know that was? Oh, you know, I could really eat a horse right now. And it's a statement, but the statement is with intent. Nicodemus ain't coming to Jesus at night for no reason. And so Jesus cuts to the chase. Okay, so you make your statement, but I hear the question underneath the statement. Because really, what Nicodemus wants to know is, who are you? Who the dickens are you? Jesus answered him, verse 3, Truly I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. This sounds like a completely random response to Nicodemus' statement. Jesus immediately begins to put Nicodemus in his place. Nicodemus, regardless of his accolades, the letters after his name, the status in the community, his religious experience, he is not on Jesus' level. And all of the things that would be regarded by people have no relevance before the Lord. None whatsoever. One of the things that Jesus does straight away is identify the fact that Nicodemus, you don't know anything. You don't really know what you're talking about. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus comes making an observation. We know that you are a teacher from God. He's claiming to perceive, to understand the working of God going on in the person of Christ. Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're talking about. For all of your religious learning, it means nothing. There's something that you're lacking. You must be born again. 
And it's interesting because we have those experiences in life. I'm sure there are those that we meet and we say, you know, we're a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian. Yeah, 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 yeah. I believe in God, you know. Got a Bible. Always leave it open. Psalms 23 by my bedside. You see them Christians though, you know. They don't really know what they're talking about, you know, because... And they want to proceed to tell you what's wrong and what's right with regards to the things of God. Because, yeah, I'm spiritual, you know, I'm spiritual. I know God, you know. I don't have to go to church. But I know God. As he stands with his Rizla tucked behind his ear. Natural, natural. Found on the, they found the herbs on the, on the grave of Solomon. This to them is spiritual, it's godly. I used to go to church when I was a child, you know. I remember speaking to this guy who used to work at the Royal Albert Hall and speaking to him, you know, about the fact that I'm a Christian and just beginning to try and share the gospel. And he's like, yeah, I know the Bible, you know, I know the Bible, I've read it all. <laughs> I'm like, you've read it all. I was impressed. He's like, yeah, 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 I read it all, I read it all. Like, well, not like... Every single verse, but <laughs> claiming to have knowledge but knowing nothing. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus responds, as you would expect someone to respond who has no idea what Jesus is talking about. Nicodemus has no idea. So, how can a man be born when he is old? He's thinking in natural terms. He's thinking in logical terms. And these are common mistakes that people make as they endeavor to approach the Bible. Even as Christians, sometimes we can fall foul of Thinking that logic is the means by which we understand the scriptures. But logic does not determine the interpretation or meaning of scripture. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus doesn't really, <laughs> Jesus responds and Jesus adds insight, but he doesn't really clarify the response. Unless you're born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now as a religious leader, Nicodemus would have had the expectation of God's kingdom. There would have been the expectation that at some point, God is going to conquer the Gentile rulers and his kingdom will come and we will dwell with him. He was familiar with the prophecies of the kingdom, the expectation of the coming king. But unless you're born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born of water and the spirit? Well, 
It's a very difficult saying to understand and it takes a little bit of unpacking. There are those that would say it speaks of baptism when it speaks of water. So in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be baptized. That doctrine is, an, is a heresy. It's an, uh, a grave error that is known as doctrinal, I'm sorry, baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration. So you, in order to be changed in, and, and able to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be baptized is what people will say wrongly. How do we know this? We know this because there was a significant individual, one who Jesus said his testimony would go around the world for generations. Who might I be thinking of? Who's that? Thief on the cross. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized when Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the clearest and simplest example. There are other things that would help us to appreciate that. So Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10 tell us that it is by grace we are saved through faith. It says nothing about baptism. Furthermore, it says not of works. So our salvation is not dependent on any work that we do. So the water referred to here cannot be speaking of baptism. Now, Jesus is, is in some ways making a contrast. He even goes on in verse 6 to say, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So is he contrasting the water of natural birth? And you say, the water of natural birth? Does that mean that I have to have been... I have to have been like had a water birth in a pool, birth in pool. Well, there was a point at which I myself thought that the water here spoke of the natural breaking of the woman's waters during the, the birth process. I thought it was a very reasonable thing as Jesus is contrasting flesh, that which is natural, and spirit. So, in the natural sense, you're born into this world, the woman's what you, you are you're in amniotic sac fluid, and the waters break and and then the baby comes out and you're it's a natural birth, but it needs more than just a natural birth, it has to be that of spirit. Well, it could be suggested that might be the case, but I've I've since changed my conviction. As logical as that might sound. You see, Jesus, we have to think about who Jesus is speaking to. We have to think about the fact that even in verse 10, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So there was something as Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus that he expected him to understand. He expected him to get the picture. To the point where he kind of goads him over it. You're a top boy. You're, you're, a, you're a boss in, in this religious movement. And yet you don't know what I'm talking about. What's going on here? And again, he just keeps pulling him down. One peg at a time. 
So in this statement, there's something that Jesus is expecting Nicodemus to understand. Now, as a teacher of Israel, he would have been teaching from the Old Testament. And so where in the Old Testament do we see reference to water and spirit and newness? And Well, there is a very, very important prophecy in Ezekiel. And um, you can turn there if you wish. Ezekiel 36, verses 23 to 28. And this was given by the prophet Ezekiel when the southern kingdom of Judah were taken into captivity by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. They were taken out of their land. They had been displaced, taken to Babylon. And there was a sense that, you know, will they ever recover from this? And so Ezekiel prophesies a prophecy of hope to the people. It's an amazing thing. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. So God's name has been profaned, um, not just amongst God's people, but amongst all the nations. And God is saying that I am going to vindicate amongst all the nations the holiness of my great name which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. So there's definitely something here that Nicodemus should have been had in mind as he talks. He hears Jesus talk about water and the spirit. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Hmm. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we see here clearly God indicating the means by which he will establish a new people. He will establish a new people by reason of giving them a new heart. Process by which he will do this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And so there's this picture of being cleansed, of being purified, of being washed by God that is being given in this prophecy. And so this is what Jesus is referring to. Jesus is referring to the work of God cleansing a people for himself. And not just cleansing them, but renewing them. New heart, new spirit. Remove the heart of stone. You know, when you say, that person's cold, you know. 
Oh my gosh. A heart stone. When we speak about a person who's unfeeling, uncaring, unconsiderate. And this is the human condition toward God. Apart from the work of God, apart from Christ, we have hearts of stone. Paul elaborates on this in Romans chapter 3. And this is known as, these, these truths are known as the doctrine of depravity, of human depravity. The fact that we are totally depraved. In that there is no good in us. In Romans 3, Paul says this. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Everyone's under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one, neither Jew nor Gentile, not one person. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Now this is a challenge. I remember I was working... um in careers and I'd worked in training I'm doing employment service training job center training for people who are unemployed and then I went to work for the career service and there was a there was a time one of the few incidences in my life when um, the few instances in my life when I felt like I I really experienced somewhat of a dilemma um, within my soul because I was working in an environment where people were good people. And I say that in a general sense, not in a spiritual sense. I say that in a moral sense. People were caring people. I sat down, I remember I went to some training over in Myland. And I remember sitting down in this training session feeling like, like what, what, actually, what, what is so bad about these people? Because they're very selfless. They're very sacrificial. They're very concerned for the needs of others. They're very altruistic or philanthropic. They're charitable. They, they are willing to give of themselves. And not only are they willing to give, on the, give of themselves, but they do so in a way that in, involves a great deal of commitment. This training session that I was, I was on was being run by a voluntary sector, sector organization. And it was to help improve the way that we work with people. And there had been a lot of thought gone into it. And there was a lot of time and effort invested in it. And I left there feeling like people just need help, you know. People just need more of this. Like there's a whole lot of long talk in church. All we need to do is get out there and do good. And just help people. And I felt in that instance a, a certain dilemma. And it wasn't at crisis point, but I felt the challenge of but people are like, people, you know, I was being told people are products of their environment. And when you hear about someone who was born 
uh, as a result of the mother's prostitution and they were being brought up in an environment where drug use and abuse was coming around them and they were uncared for and then they were abused by someone who had come into the house and they don't even know who. And you hear these experiences and you see the things that people go through and you can, you're like, I can understand that. That person's life is a reflection of their experience. I mean, look at all what they've gone through. It's, it's, there's no wonder they, they turn out dysfunctional. And it really proved to be a dilemma in my soul. And it got me to a place where for a, for a season, I kind of had to wrestle with it. To the point where I was like, why all of this preaching about judgment? Like, why don't we preach the good stuff? Why don't we just focus on all that God can do for a person in terms of making their life better? Some of you have probably asked those questions. You may still be asking those questions. But you see, the reality is that the heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. Because... People can have great experiences in life. People can come from a very stable home life where their family had money and brought them up um, with morals and values. And they had the best start in life in terms of education. They went to prep school. They went to private school. They went to Red Brick Oxbridge University. And yet still, they're deceitful. They're proud. They cheat on their partners. They take drugs. It, you know, it, it, we say product of environment. But this person, it's like you see the footballers and they're earning like 50 grand a week. And they have the success and the status and all of the things that life is supposed to offer us in ways that are going to make us a better person. But like my boy Flame said, money don't make you better. Money don't make you better. And so the issue is much deeper. It's much more than just circumstances. It's much more than environment. You know, in psychology, they have the argument, is it nurture or nature? The Bible tells us it's nature. Nurture has its, all have sinned. Everyone. But we just sin in different ways. It just looks different for different people. But the reality is that sin will manifest in our lives. And very often, our environment, our experience, may influence and even determine the way that our sin manifests. But it's going to come out. It's going to come out. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so humans are born dead in sin. Spiritually dead in sin. With hearts of stone. Not fearing God, not seeking God, not understanding God, not wanting God. 
And so we appreciate as we go back to John 3, that what Jesus is talking about is a divine work of God. A divine work of God that could only be done by him. In our Ezekiel prophecy, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. God does it. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's a work of God. And so that cleansing that's being spoken of in John chapter 3. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit, the third person of the trinity, doing that work of regeneration within the human heart, then that one is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, verse 7, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, as Jesus takes us into verse 8, he is also again referring to Ezekiel, the following chapter, Ezekiel 37. And we see John noting Jesus' play on words in these verses. Because when Jesus says, unless one is born again, the word again can also mean from above. So unless one is born from above, unless one is born again. It's a double meaning, double entendre. The word spirit can also be translated as breath or wind. And so in verse 6, when Jesus says, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, okay, that which is born of the Spirit, the wind, the breath, hmm, like Nicodemus is there able to wrestle with all of this in his mind during this conversation. Ezekiel 37. For the sake of time, I won't read all of it, but in your own time, I'd encourage you to read verses 1 to 14. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin. And put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. You see, God has got Ezekiel looking at a vision of a valley filled with dry bones, dead bones. And the, the fact that they're dry shows that they've been dead for some time. You know, if you see a bone under the soil and it's juicy, then you know that that's, that's not been there that long. But when you see those dry, crusty bones, 
You know, that's, that's been dead. That's been there for some time. And this is what Ezekiel's looking at. And this is the prophecy that God gives him to tell the people. I will put breath into, into you and you shall live. So Ezekiel says in verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them. And skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. So at this point, there's movement. There's, there's, they're coming, there's an assembling. But there's no breath in them. There's no life. And we could see this as a picture of dead religion. A people assembled in God's name and yet lacking the life of God. Lacking the spirit of God. And that doesn't mean the spirit in terms of open speaking in tongues and I declare to you today, breakthroughs. Not, not in that sense. If we're honest, that's actually just emotion primarily. And it's not anchored in what we see in scripture. But we're talking about spiritual life that comes from a life changed by the spirit. Verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. So we see at the word of the Lord, breath enters into this great army. It's not finished. God goes on to say, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live in verse 14. So here we see a clear prediction of what Jesus now stands as fulfilling before Nicodemus in John 3. Affirming the fact that People need more than just refacing and refashioning. We need more than just a whitewash. More than just cosmetic surgery. More than just a new name. We need a new nature. That happens by God's will. By the working of God's spirit. Look at 9 to 14 of John 3. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so as Jesus sets Nicodemus straight, saying, come on, guy. Like, you're supposed to know this stuff and you don't know it. What if I was to really, I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just 
quoting to you from the scriptures that you're familiar with and you don't understand? What if I was to tell you stuff from the heavenly realm that no one's been to but me, the son of man? Like, what would you say then? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Now, again, it seems like, whoa, like Jesus, you just come with these left field statements. Moses lifting up serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. So he's referring to an incident in Numbers chapter 21. The children of Israel are progressing through the wilderness, trying to make their way to the promised land. And in this instance, they, they, they speak against God and they speak about Moses. Moses, have you just brought us out here to kill us? This is long and it's hard and we're not getting anywhere. I swear we're going around in circles, to paraphrase, because they were. And so God sent judgment upon them and he sent snakes, he sent serpents to bite them and bring them in check. Poisonous serpents. And the people were dying and God said to Moses, okay, look, I'm going to spring, I'm going to, I'm going to offer mercy for their judgment. Take a brass serpent. Attach it to a stick and hold it up in front of the people. And anyone who looks upon that serpent will be made well. They will live. They won't die. And so said, so done. Moses made the serpent and lifted it up. And the people looked at it and they lived. Now, why in the world a serpent? Like when we think about a serpent in biblical terms, what does that cause us to think of Satan Satan and so is this Satan being exalted before the people when we think about the context of Numbers 21 and again you can look at that in your own time we'll see that the serpents were sent as a judgment for their sin and it was when the people cried out we have sinned in repentance That God provided salvation. And so here we see Jesus speaking of the fact that. He like that serpent. Representing the judgment of people's sin must be lifted up. As he who is judged for the sins of the world. He must be lifted up. Not just in status. But. Literally, physically, put on a stick and presented before the people. How can a serpent represent our saviour? How is there a relationship between those two pictures? They don't seem to work. And yet we recognise that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. And so as Jesus was nailed to the cross, receiving the judgment for our sin, he took upon himself our sin. He was completely identified with our sin in the eyes of God. Completely associated 
with every sin you've ever committed and will ever commit. In your place, in my place, as our substitutes. And so he bore the image of sin in order that all who would look upon him and believe, verse 15, that whoever, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, this is the means by which we receive the new heart. This is the means by which we are made new. Our hearts are regenerated and changed. And that we not only receive a new lease of life. Because for many, you know, I remember working with a guy, I think I told the story before. And um, he, he was a member of the Labour Party. And he was an Oxford graduate. And um, he was the job club leader that I worked at. And I was the job club assistant. And sometimes we would have to go in on weekends to 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 get our admin straight because we were going to be audited and so on. And I remember this particular weekend we were there talking and he was going through some madness in his relationship with his partner. And um, he was an atheist by his own profession. And um, I remember t talking with him and just randomly we just got to this point in the conversation. I said to him, look, if you could have anything in the world, furthermore, if you could ask God for anything, what would you ask him for? And he said, um, the ability to start again with a clean slate. And I really didn't expect that answer at all. But it's just that sense of having an opportunity to start again with a clean slate. And he went on to say, not just starting with a clean slate, but knowing what I know now. So for all of the wisdom of the years, he was a little bit older than me, thinking, you know, if I could have just the benefit of my experience without a record held against me and being able to use the benefit of that experience and move forward, that would be good for me. And... I had a rare opportunity in a time of real openness to share with him the fact that Jesus offers this opportunity when he says you must be born again. And that through faith in him, we can have a new start, a clean slate, knowing what we know now. But more than that, more than that, God puts his spirit in us. And so... We don't just know what to do, but we're empowered by his spirit, enabled to do it. And when John speaks about eternal life, he's not just speaking about a quantity. He's not just speaking about everlasting days. He's also speaking about a quality of life, a divine quality of life. Now, I don't know if there's anybody who would like that. I know I'm up for that. I'll receive that, that divine quality of life. Not just living with a clean slate, knowing what I know now, to go and make the same mistakes. Because we do, isn't it? 
I said I was gonna have no kebabs. Lock off the KFC. Tutus were in Pizza Hut. We do. And yet the Lord enables us by his spirit. And then we come to the most famous verse in the world, hands down. John 3.16. I'm sure that most of us could quote it together. For God so loved the world, say it with me, that he gave Amen. Now some of you are kind of like moving your mouths and mumbling because you don't really know it. But it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And when John speaks of world here, he's speaking of everyone. He's not just speaking of those for whom Jesus died. Only those whom Jesus died for will receive eternal life. But when God here speaks of his love for the world, he's speaking of everyone. You see, man was made in God's image. And through the fall in the garden, Adam and Eve, their rebellion against God, that image was distorted but not destroyed. This is why theologians will say, Man is totally depraved in every aspect of our being, but not absolutely. Because there is still evidence of God's image within us. And so, we see the promise that whoever believes in him will not perish. And that word perish is interesting. I once heard a a really great guy and a really great preacher I'm David Pawson teaching on this verse. And um, although I didn't agree with absolutely everything he had to say about it, because he kind of really dissected it in a different way. He said, this word perish speaks of something that has lost its purpose, that is no longer usable for the purpose for which it was created. We use the word maybe if we speak about food perishables so the food becomes um, destroyed beyond use it becomes affected to the point where it's no longer able to be used and that's the plight of anyone who does not find newness of life in Christ because As individuals, as people, humans were made for the glory of God. Were made to glorify God. And no one can truly and fully glorify God apart from the regenerating work of God's spirit making us new. And if somebody will not be made new, then they have no further use. And as David Pawson says, what do you do with something that has no more use? You dispose of it. And so we see here Jesus intimating the judgment of those who would refuse to trust in him. And not just trust in him. Because 
as he goes on in the next verses, verses 17 to 21, we see Jesus highlight something else that is needed in addition to faith in order for there to be renewal. Something that the guys at the end of chapter 2 who believed on him because of the signs, something that they never had. Let's look at these verses and see if we can see what, they, what that is. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God in his compassion and his love recognizes man's need. And in response to man's need, doesn't just judge man without providing a solution. You know, in, in leadership, we will always say, look, if there's a problem, consider a solution before you point out the problem. It's good practice. God doesn't just point out man's problems and flaws without providing a solution. And that solution is his son. And Jesus has already indicated the means by which he will redeem people. That is through being lifted up on a stick. He will be nailed to a cross. God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And yet to reject his son. To reject his love. Is to expect no further favor from God. And yet we understand that. God is not. Trying to beat people over the head. He's trying to lead people to the son. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Somebody needs to say amen. I, I need a believer in the building to say amen. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And so because of human sinfulness... Humans already stand condemned before God, guilty before God. And so that is merely affirmed as people choose to reject. People's rejection of the Son affirms their condemnation and the sinful nature of their hearts. Wow, community group's going to be peaked this week. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The light has come, but they love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. I remember there was a time when um, my gran was unwell. She went into hospital and I went to stay with my aunt in Brixton. I, I lived in Clapham and I kind of went between both um, houses, staying with my gran mostly, but then with my aunt sometime. And um, I remember I staying in my cousin's room. And it was night and the lights were off. And I could hear this kind of like 
noise. And it was just like, it sounded like something hard on, on a countertop. And I could hear it like every now and then and it would stop and then move. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, it's a rat. No. And I don't like rats, you know. And I'm thinking, beginning to get kind of scared, like, oh, I have to get up to the light because there was no bedside lamp. And the light switch is in the area that the noise is coming from. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to lay here. I just hope. I'm not, and I keep hearing this noise. So I kind of prop myself up on the bed, get to the end of the bed, think to myself, I don't know what it is, but I'm going to make some noise and then I'm going to leap for the light switch. Because I figure that whatever it is, when the light comes on, it's gone. Hoping that I don't stumble on it as, I'm, as I make my leap. I leap for the light switch and as I leap for the light switch, what did I see? Did I see rats? I saw roaches. Dirty big roaches. They was on top of the dresser, on top of the TV in the corner. What I could hear was their, their, their feet on the, um, TV, the plastic back of the TV and on the countertop. And I just... Let but as the light came on, the roaches disappeared. Now, that didn't really console me because I had to sleep with the light on, did it? <laughs> I don't know where they've gone. I figured they're going to come back. Slept with the light on. You see, the light has come. But people run from the light. Why? Because they don't want to be exposed. People want to do their own thing. People don't want... Jesus to come and kill their vibe. I like what I'm doing because it suits me. And that is the seat of sin. Pride. Self-exaltation. And yet, for those who come into the light, there is that sense of repentance that is expressed in the willingness to be exposed. See, we expose ourselves to God, the light of God, and say, God, I am a sinner. And like, there's no trying to hide it. No matter how much I dress it up, I pretty it up, no matter how much I refashion and restyle my life, I'm a sinner. And I need you. And God says there's salvation for that person. And this continues to have relevance for us as Christians. In, John, in James chapter 5. In fact, in 1 John 1, we're told, to, we're told to walk in the light. In James chapter 5, we're told to confess our sins one to another. That we may be healed. And so there's supposed to be that ongoing sense of openness where we are ready to make ourselves accountable not trying to hide in secret sin but we make ourselves accountable not waiting to be exposed and found out but ready to gain relief 
and support as we openly are repentant of our sin. And this is what we see that they lacked at the end of chapter 2 because they believed on Jesus but they still clung to their sin. And there is no salvation without repentance. People can acknowledge Jesus as much as they want. I remember there was a, a, a season when there was a like, the Lord was just doing the work and saving a load of people. It was around the time when um, I met Pastor Rob and Helen and um, some of the individuals who were, um, you know, like even back in the day, Mark Mack, um, Brian the Bold, some of you know Brian. People were getting saved in the post office. It was spilling out. Loads of young people were getting saved. And I remember one girl, she said, you know, my sister, I don't understand what's going on with my sister. Even she doesn't understand what's going on with her because she believes in Jesus. And she turns around and she says, how is it that my life doesn't look like yours? Because you believe in Jesus and I believe in Jesus, but I'm still raving. I'm still sleeping with the guys. I'm still drinking. I'm still, I don't like, but I believe in Jesus. The reality is that the true believer believes with repentance. The recognition that sin is wrong. And for our sins, we are guilty. And we bring that to God. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And trust in that through Christ, we receive his spirit who enables us. To walk in his ways. And so in this we see the need for us to be renewed. Or be refused. You know people have this notion that. Ultimately everyone's going to go to heaven. And we hear it all the time at funerals. We know they're in a better place. How do we know they're in a better place? Like we have no time for God. Until, until someone's dead. And we, we dare not think the worst. Every person is accountable. Each one of us, each person individually is accountable to God. Each person has opportunity to come into the light, trust Jesus, and receive a new heart and a new nature. The Apostle Paul said, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is the promise and that is the invitation. So as I invite the team to return. I encourage you today to consider where you're at are you like Nicodemus a religious person who kind of does the church stuff you do what I call churchianity and you know about God but you don't really know him you're not known by him Are you someone who is given to attendance and feels that that's sufficient? 
Or have you submitted, have you trusted Christ for that change of heart? Because that's all it takes. There isn't any kind of special, you know, ritual that you have to go through. It's simply a matter of repenting, acknowledging that you're guilty of your sin and deserving of judgment. And yet then trusting Jesus, just like the children of Israel in the wilderness who looked at the serpent on the stick and believed and they lived. All you need to do is look to Jesus and believe that his sacrifice for your sin is sufficient. That God was satisfied with it. God raised him from the dead, affirming sin paid in full. No longer guilty, no longer condemned. And through him, you're able to experience the power of his resurrection at work in your life, giving you newness. The work of his spirit, changing your heart, giving you new desires. As a Christian, are you continually trusting Christ? Do you allow yourself to fall into condemnation when, you know, your Bible reading kind of falls off? Do you cause yourself to be put on a guilt trip after the argument? Are you trusting the sufficient and satisfactory sacrifice of Christ. Jesus is enough. Are you walking in the light, confessing your sin, or are you hiding secret sin? God invites you into the light without fear of repercussion or without fear of judgment. Because Jesus has been judged. Let's stand as we pray. Father God, we do thank you for giving your son, your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. no longer declared unfit for purpose and disposed of but have eternal life Lord I pray that you would cause every one of our hearts to be fully in tune Lord with just the message of your spirit today through your word that Lord we would be those who trust you even in our failings and even in our shortcomings that, Lord, we would be submitted and surrendered to you. Thank you, Lord, for the presence and work of your spirit that renews our dead, stony hearts, giving us a heart of flesh, tender and sensitive to you. Help us, Lord, not to harden our hearts, not allowing our hearts to become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, pride and deceit. cause us Lord always to be tender hearted before you ready to confess our sins to you and to one another 
that we might find relief. Have your way in our hearts and lives, Lord, we ask today. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.